weeks deep into our month-long series, Stories, where we are working through four parables that Jesus taught. And if you're not too sure what a parable is, don't worry, you're probably not alone. A parable is a story that Jesus told to teach or articulate what the kingdom of God looked like in comparison to what his audience knew. Okay, and in a parable, there's often these characters or these objects in which the audience can relate to in order to contextualize the story that he is teaching into their current reality. We believe that the stories that shaped a generation then will form a generation now. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. We are going to be talking about the parable of the unmerciful servant. And last week, Pastor Nick mentioned, and I want to take the same opportunity to mention that if you do not have a Bible, we would love to give you one. So you can head out to the welcome desk after service and grab one to keep. It is yours. Uh, But this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. And before we jump into our parable, there's a few things that we need to establish so that we are all on the same page with what is going on in this story. So the first thing is that Jesus is teaching this parable to his disciples. Okay, they're most likely in the middle of Jesus's ministry, so they've probably been traveling with Jesus for about a year to a year and a half at this point. The second thing is that at this time, the Jewish people were under a oppressive monarchy. The third thing is that the Jewish people know their history. Okay, they know their history. Most Jewish people had the entire Torah which is the Old Testament memorized. And then the fourth thing is that the passage that precedes this parable is Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20. And this is the classic, I like to call it the how to deal with conflict passage. And it basically, Jesus is going, he's saying, if somebody sins against you, if somebody hurts you, go point it out. And if that doesn't work, then bring one person into the conversation. And if that doesn't work, then bring another person in the conversation. And if that doesn't work, go ahead and bring another person in the conversation. Basically, so on and so on, you get the point. And what he's communicating is that if there's a problem, if somebody hurts you, try to solve it as quickly and with as little people as possible. Okay, and then he says this, this is verse 17. If they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. But what does Jesus say about how we treat pagans and tax collectors? These are the sinners. These are the people that you do not like, the lowest of the low. Jesus says that we invite them into our homes, we celebrate with them, we eat with them, and we love them, and we treat them with the utmost kindness. And in response to that, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, asks this question, which sparks the teaching of the parable, which is our text for the day. So, Verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Well, first of all, I think it's kind of funny because Peter's brother Andrew is also one of Jesus' disciples. And while it's very likely that Peter is referencing some other situation, or maybe he's not even referencing a situation at all. It's also very likely that he's just like dogging on his brother Andrew that's like literally standing right there. He's like, Jesus, straight up, how many times do I absolutely have to forgive this guy? (laughs) But the second thing that I find funny 
is that Peter is basically telling Jesus the answer to his own question. Like he's like, hey Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Do you think that seven times would be enough? Like he's leading Jesus to the right answer. And remember how I said earlier that the Jews know their history? Well, by asking the question this way, Peter is referring to Amos chapter one, which is in the Old Testament. And in Amos chapter one, God is forgiving people three times. And that's important because Peter said up to seven times. And so what he's saying is he's going, hey, Jesus, I know God forgave people three times in the Old Testament, but I'm actually really awesome, and I'm going to forgive people seven times. So, Jesus, what do you think about that? And then Jesus says, verse 22, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And it is so easy to look at Jesus' response to Peter and say, well, Jesus said that I only have to forgive somebody 77 times, which honestly isn't that much if you actually think about it. Because we're always waiting for the perfect number to allow our forgiveness to run out. We are Peter. Peter is us. Peter is saying, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive? And Jesus is saying, friend, friend, you've missed the point. Your self-righteousness is lying to you. You want to have a limit to the amount of times that you have to forgive somebody else, but then in the same breath, you never want that forgiveness to run out on you. Have you ever muttered the words, oh, I really hate it when people text and drive, like literally while you're texting and driving? <laughs> Guys, your self-righteousness is lying to you. This one is me. I'll get really frustrated with my husband for not doing the dishes because he had like a busy day. I'm like, dude, you had one job. But like at the same time, I didn't do the laundry because I also had a busy day. Or maybe you're a Purdue fan. You know, I mean, you thought you were gonna make it. You thought you had a chance. And then some play-in team 16 seed comes and destroys you. That had to hurt, bro. But these are really silly, not so silly for the Purdue fans, examples of a real point that Jesus is trying to make. He's saying your self-righteousness is lying to you. He's saying you cannot put an end to your forgiveness. Purdue, you have to forgive. FDU, bro. <laughs> but then he shares this parable, which is our teaching text for today. So... Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle the accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, and he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. 
Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all of that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had the mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So obviously that's really uplifting, but let's look back through this passage for some quick observations. The first thing that I notice in this passage is that servant A, that's how we're going to identify them, by the way, it's servant A and servant B. Servant A owes the master 10,000 bags of gold. That equals three lifetimes worth of wages. And after that, it's just like casually mentioned. I love what the servant said. Verse 26 says, At this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. I think we all understand that this guy's not paying back everything. I mean, it's three lifetimes worth of working for money. He can't pay that back. But I think that's what the first thing that stands out to me because the master immediately has compassion onto this servant. Clearly, we all understand that paying back three lifetimes worth of debt is impossible, but it is the fact that instead of just lowering the debt, I mean, the king could have said, you know what, let's just lower it to a year. That seems pretty reasonable. Or six months, 10 years worth of debt. He could have said any of those things, but instead he just canceled it all. And the thing that really gets me about that is who is eating that cost? Who is taking the fall for that debt? If somebody owed you $5 and you said, you know what, just forget about it. It's fine, you don't have to pay me back. You're still out the $5. It's not like $5 just got magically restored to your wallet. Somebody still had to pay that. So that's the thing about debt. Debt always has to go somewhere. Debt always has to go somewhere. There's no perfect scenario where debt just magically disappeared so it's either paid or it's absorbed. So what about this king? He's trying to settle his accounts, and he's got a guy that owes him three lifetimes worth of money. I don't think we understand how big that is. Three lifetimes worth of money. If this was your business, it would be tanked. It'd be failed. You would be out of business. Yet the king had compassion, and he took pity on the one that owed him and canceled his debt, absorbing it on the servant's behalf. So in response to the king's mercy, what does the servant do? This is the second thing I noticed. He immediately found a guy that owed him money and tried to make him pay up. That's what he did. Verse 28, when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins, and he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Unfortunately, <clears throat> The great tragedy of this story is that servant A left the compassion of the king with his heart completely unchanged and projected that on to servant B. And that's the third thing I noticed. Servant B owes servant A 100 silver coins. 
That is three months worth of wages. Three months. And rather than just even asking if the guy could pay it back, servant A just jumps straight to violence, like immediately starts choking this guy out. And this is the part that really jumps out at me. Verse 29 says, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Where have we heard that before? Sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Oh yeah, that's right. When the first servant was begging the king. The symmetry of this passage is so beautiful. Because this is exactly what servant A said to the king when he asked for his money back. And so what a beautiful opportunity for servant A to recognize himself in the servant that he's demanding money from. This should have triggered him to remember what happened when he said those words. The king forgave him. And it may have. He may have remembered but then he chose retaliation instead. And what happened to him? Well, it's the fourth thing I noticed, how the king responds. The king heard about how servant A treated servant B and had him thrown in jail. And verse 32 picks up and says, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I don't know about you, but that really bothers me. Like, it bothers me. So this king forgives this guy of his debt, but apparently has these unspoken expectations of paying it forward. And then if he doesn't pay it forward, which he doesn't, he now has to be thrown into jail and tortured until he can pay back the original debt that he owed? The king knew how much he owed. That's three lifetimes worth of money. And the only way that he can get out is by paying back, from prison by the way, three lifetimes worth of money. And so the king throws this guy into jail knowing that he has no way of getting out? Where's the mercy from the king we met before? It's not the same. But our English translation of this text loses the meaning of the Greek text. Where in reality, this verse could be translated, in anger his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until servant A should pay back all servant B owed. The he's are different. They're two different people. And what a drastic but powerful difference that servant A must stay in prison until he can pay back the debt, forgive the debt, absorb the debt of servant B. And this makes much more sense with how Jesus ended this parable when he says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 
So what is Jesus trying to teach us in this parable? What are we supposed to take out of this? That true forgiveness is scandalous. True forgiveness is scandalous. You see, the world teaches us that we need to have an absurd revenge for the smallest of actions, but the kingdom teaches us that we should have an equal and opposite absurd forgiveness for even the smallest of offenses. Okay, so what happens when I feel like forgiveness isn't enough? That they deserve more. What happens when the reality of the situation is just that unforgivable? Well, Jesus knew who he was talking to. Remember I said that Jesus is teaching this parable to his disciples. The Jewish people have suffered from the hand of their oppressors for generations, and these oppressors did unspeakable things. And so knowing that, I think we need to define what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not condoning. We do something really toxic. People say, I'm sorry, and what do we say? It's okay. Um, it's actually not. It's not okay. You can't do that. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Because when we forget, it prevents both parties from growth. But forgiveness is also not keeping score. Forgiveness is not that there will be no consequences, because that's extremely permissive. Forgiveness is not excusing. Oh, well, he did that because of his past. Doesn't make it okay. Forgiveness is not accepting or allowing because you are not somebody's doormat. You are not somebody's punching bag. Forgiveness is not fixing. It is not trusting. And it is not reconciling because forgiveness takes one person. Reconciling takes two. But now that we've uh, defined what forgiveness is not, we need to define what forgiveness is. And forgiveness is a reckoning and it's a release. Forgiveness is a reckoning and it is a release. It is a, I know what you did and I name what you did, but you do not have to make it up to me and I will not hold it against you. It is an acknowledgement of the criminality of the act that happened to you, but a recognition of the humanity of your offender and also of yours. Earlier this morning, we talked about the passage that precedes this parable, the conflict passage, as I like to call it. Jesus literally just said, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point it out. Forgiveness is a reckoning first. It is an acknowledgement of criminality first. It is an accusation first, and that's really scary for those of us that don't like conflict. But forgiveness requires bravery and courage. But forgiveness doesn't end there. The second part of forgiveness is a release. We need to acknowledge our humanity and the humanity of our offender. 
you remember in the parable how when servant A could not pay back everything he owed to the king? And so he fell on his knees and he said, be patient with me and I will pay it back. And then when servant A was demanding the money from servant B, servant B fell on his knees and he said, be patient with me and I will pay it back. This was the opportunity for servant A to look at servant B and step back and say, man, this guy's me. He knew how his family had suffered prior and the relief that came after the mercy of the king. And if he would have just looked past his own greed and his own self-righteousness, he may have been able to stop and notice that servant B is him. This is our opportunity to look at ourselves and recognize our debt. That the debt that I owe is so much greater than the debt that is owed to me. People often say in the church that all sin is equal. There's a very pure intent behind that saying, and I understand why people say it. But as humans, we understand that there is a different gravity between lying to your mom and homicide. They're not the same. They do not have the same consequences. They do not have the same repercussions. A debt of three lifetimes is obviously more than a debt of three months. But human debts are not equal. But God's grace and his mercy is equal to everybody. In our humanity, forgiveness is especially difficult because it requires us to deny ourselves and our desires. Forgiveness is a refusal to retaliate. It's a refusal to stir the pot. It's a refusal to participate in, but they did it first. And honestly, that's so hard. It's so hard <laughs> to deny your, yourself of what your flesh wants so, so badly. But forgiveness is a costly form of suffering. But here's the thing. You're going to suffer either way. At the end of the parable, servant A ends up in prison of his own making. And he's given the key to get out by forgiving servant B, but he chooses not to. He would rather suffer alone in a prison rather than forgive this man's debt. I feel like a lesson Jesus may be teaching us is to forgive like our lives depend on it. I mean, what if instead of just living our lives as we are now, we chose to live every day walking abundantly in radical forgiveness? I mean, what a powerful way to demonstrate the love of Jesus because that's exactly what he did for us on the cross. Remember earlier I said debt has to go somewhere. It's either paid or it's absorbed. And Jesus absorbed our debt onto himself so that we could walk in freedom. And so when we face our oppressor, when someone hurts us, we have to recognize that Jesus already paid for their mistake on the cross. It doesn't excuse what they did to you, but it does change how we see them. And sometimes we just have to let the death of Jesus be enough. 
Friends, we so desperately want a resurrected life. We so badly just want to walk in freedom, released from bondage, but we've told ourselves this lie that the thing that happened to us is our bondage, but our bondage is our resentment. Our bondage is our hardened heart. Our bondage is the fact that we walked away from the compassion of the king with our hearts unchanged. And in order to have a resurrected life, there always has to be a death. Something has to die in order to be resurrected. But the wrong that was committed against you is not your death. It is the forgiveness of that wrong that is the death because it is a dying of yourself that has to happen. Jesus did not die because of our sin. He died because he chose to forgive our sin. He had to die to himself. He chose to die to himself. God had a choice to make when we turned against him. He could either hold it against us and turn away, which he had every single right to do, or he could die to himself and show love to us in spite of our wrongdoing. And God is a God who will die to himself every single time. He will absorb and take the debt upon himself every time in order to release us from paying it. And because of his choice, because of his death on the cross, we have the opportunity to walk in a life of abundant freedom and abundant love. We have been released. We have been released. But when we don't do that, when we say that's unforgivable, when we choose to retaliate, when we choose to hold a grudge, we're saying that Jesus' forgiveness wasn't good enough. We're saying that the death of Jesus wasn't enough for us or for this person that hurt us, but the blood of Jesus covered every mistake and every wrongdoing and every hurt, and that includes the one that hurt you. <clears throat> Church, we have to let the death of Jesus be enough for us. We have to let the power of the cross be enough for us. And we do that by denying our flesh and our need for fairness. If we don't, if we choose not to deny our flesh, then we are denying the power of the cross. Pastor Nick said last week, he said, get over yourself. We have to die to ourselves. We have to die the death that leads to life. Why? Because walking in the resurrected life of Jesus because strolling in the garden with God like we were originally intended to do requires the humility to say, you know what, God? Your way is so much better than mine. Forgiveness is an act of humility that we as Christians are called to partake in. Jesus set the example by choosing to forgive the unforgivable. Can you? Can you do that? Can you forgive the unforgivable? 
It's hard to imagine being able to forgive somebody that is so unforgivable. They hurt us. That's hard. I don't know many people that could do that. I want to share this quick video of a mother who forgave the man that murdered her son. She had every single right to retaliate. She had every right to hold it against him. She had every right to say, I forgive you, but never release the resentment from her heart. This is a story of radical kingdom forgiveness when the world tells us to seek retaliation instead. So let's watch this video. We end tonight with one of the most potent powers on earth. It can change lives in an instant. Everyone has it. It's the power to forgive. Watch it now in action in Steve Hartman's Assignment America. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20 and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow, she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son, but the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself, and I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, 
to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Yes, I'm grateful. Which explains why Mary can sing yes, her praise of thanks to her audience so of one. Steve Hartman, CBS yes, News, Minneapolis. For all you've done for me. It's a powerful story. In the parable, when servant A demands his money from servant B and he can't pay, he throws him in prison. And at the end of the parable, when the king finds out what servant A did, he throws him in prison. Could you imagine what would have happened if he just would have forgiven the guy? Yeah. If he just looked past his own self-righteousness and he said, you know what? This king showed me undeserved mercy. So I should show this same kindness to this man. If he did that, if he chose to forgive him, there would have been two freed men at the end of this story instead of two in prison. You have a choice to make today. You can leave here remaining in the bondage of resentment, stuck in your prison of unforgiveness, or you can choose to have courage and look past your self-righteousness and step into absurd, radical, scandalous forgiveness. Who do you need to forgive? Who is the person that comes to mind? Is there a person in your life that you've told yourself that you've forgiven but badmouth them every single chance that you get? Is there someone that you are just holding on to the bondage of resentment? Is it a family member? Is it your spouse? Is it your friend, your coworker, your neighbor? Who is it? Some of you have not said this person's name in years. Some of you, this person is no longer with us. And maybe you need to head to the prayer room. You need to speak this person's name out loud. And you need to release the resentment from your heart and allow a prayer team member to pray over you. Maybe some of you need to get up and go make a phone call like right now. Like when we're done with this, you're gonna get up and you're gonna go outside and you're gonna call somebody and you're gonna say, I forgive you. And release that resentment from your heart. Some of you need to forgive yourselves of something that you've done. And during this next worship set, you need to get on your knees and you need to say to the Lord, Lord, your forgiveness of me is enough. You need to say, your death on the cross was enough for me.
Don't let this moment pass. The spirit is alive in you, so have the courage to forgive. I'm gonna pray over you, but as we do, I wanna encourage you to open your hands because we recognize that forgiveness takes a level of humility that we as humans aren't necessarily capable of, and so we need to call on the Holy Spirit to help us. So Spirit of the living God, we call on you this morning. We know that you are here, God. Lord, we just ask that you give us the courage to step out into radical forgiveness, God. God, show us what could happen if one person had the courage to radically forgive, scandalously forgive, God, we would see revival here in Indianapolis. And so if that could happen from just one person, God, imagine what would happen if this entire church had the, the opportunity and the audacity to step out into radical forgiveness, God. God, show us who we need to forgive. God, may your death on the cross be enough for us. We recognize, God, that it is in your humility that forgiveness, true forgiveness, true scandalous forgiveness is possible. So God, we call on your spirit to be alive in us as we step out in love. Lord, we lift these things to you. Amen.